Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. Today, I have an interview with Jess Ronnie, and Jess is a fantastic person, a, an amazing advocate for autism folks everywhere, and she's an author, a speaker, a podcast host. She's CEO of the Lucas Project, which is a nonprofit serving special needs families with recognition and res- and respite. Um, and I like to say also with respect, <laughs> which is why I was tripping over my words a little bit there. Um, she is a mom of eight kids in a blended family and um, her disabled son, Lucas. So... Um, I have been following her blogs, uh, Jess Plus the Mess, and it is touching and heartbreaking and funny. And um, she has really led with grace and humor. And um, it's funny because her book, uh, Blended with Grit and Grace, really invites you along her journey with with you with you, with her. (laughs) And, um, this book, uh, that just came out really, um, really spoke to me. It, it talks about her and her husband's blended family after each of them lost their spouses to cancer in 2010 and their unexpected, um, new love, affair and their journey together and what it was, what it's like for them having eight kids under one roof, often hilarious, uh, very touching and just, um, quite, uh, quite different than many of our lives, but so much for us to lean on as well. This is her second book. Her first book, um, was sunlight burning at midnight, which came out in 2016 And, um, that talked about her experience in losing her husband. And then also, um, it started with their baby's diagnosis with a life-changing disability. So this was, uh, really fascinating. I didn't get through the whole book, um, but I couldn't put it down and I just didn't have enough time to read it all before I needed to do the interview with Jess, um, But Jess is most proud of her work on the Lucas Project, and I really am excited for you to hear about that, something that all of us really need as we go through our our lives, uh, 
caring for someone with a disability or someone with special needs. They provide care packages, uh, spa baskets, respite wish lists, respite grants, but it's this whole idea of just breaking through this cloud of invisibility that we have as family members, as caregivers. We just need recognition. We need that compassion. And a lot of times society just doesn't know what our needs are. And recognition is that first hurdle. And then we have to provide that relief to families, to caregivers. So um, this was just a fantastic interview. I could have talked to her all day. I love Jess and you will too. I really hope that you will get in touch. Let me know what you think of this interview. I have been hearing from a lot of you. I got introduced to Jess before her Autism Wars article, but I did uh, see her her piece that was shared. The part of the article that she was in, I expected no less of her. Um, she was talking about um, children's privacy and um, just that we're desperate for change. And that's why we share our children's and our stories. And again, I would expect no less from Jess to um, be there talking about, you know, how we can't fix what people don't know about and we need to share. We need to share our stories. And children are only as healthy as their caregivers. So we've got to peel back that curtain and we have to talk about what our lives are like. So without further ado, here's Jess. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I have a real treat for you today. I am so excited to have Jess Ronnie with me today. And she is a mom extraordinaire. She's a mom to a whole crew of kids. Uh, she is a blended family mom and she's an author. She is funny and serious all at the same time. I've been following her for a while. Her blog is um, Jess Plus the Mess. And um, it really touches on so many things with um, humor and heart. That's kind of the way that I like to think of it. So welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited and happy to have you here with us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So I got introduced to her um, even before I saw her comments on the Autism Wars uh, Today show article. And um, I did ask my producer to go out and grab her and ask her if she would be willing to come on the show and talk to me about a number of things. Uh, we were talking before we started this episode and I said, I don't know how we're going to contain this in 40 minutes because I have so many things that I want to talk to Jess about. But you really have to hear a little bit about Jess's backstory because it is, um, it's kind of one of those incredible life stories that most of us don't experience and it's moving. Um, there's, there's just, um, there's so much to it. There's a lot of living in your years and Jess, can you just kind of 
walk our audience through a little bit of what you've been through? Yeah, I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, I guess my story begins in 2004 when I went to what I thought was a routine ultrasound appointment for my second child. And um, I was 20 weeks along and it was there that I was told that my unborn baby had suffered a stroke in utero and there was very little hope and um, the doctor suggested termination. And uh, my husband and I decided that that was not an option and we were going to put the baby in the Lord's hands and pray for a miracle, which is what we started to do. And on August 12, 2004, um, I was induced with a C-section and they cut my stomach open from one side to the other because my baby had a two-year-old size head at birth and they lifted out baby Lucas Mm-hmm. At that point, and he was two weeks early. Um, they kept saying this baby will spontaneously abort at some point. There's no way he's going to make it to birth. And they had to force him out. And he came out screaming with life. And I just wept. I couldn't believe my baby was alive. Wow. And um, uh, two weeks later, we were discharged from the NICU. And that was my introduction into the world of special needs parenting. And I often say, I don't even feel like I grieved at that point because I was grieving so much all throughout the pregnancy that it was more of a moment of rejoicing because I had the expectation that my baby was going to die. Right. So I went home with a live baby. I was thrilled. I didn't even care what, what that story was going to entail. My baby was alive. So I was yeah. good to go. Um, so you know, life was really difficult for the next couple of years. Lucas didn't sleep. He was delayed in every aspect. He had hydrocephalus. He had the shunt revision, um, scoliosis, Chiari malformation, et cetera, et cetera. And three years later in 2007, my husband at the time, Jason, began having a lot of health problems, which was really odd. He was losing weight. He was disoriented. His vision was going, um, and he kept going to specialist after specialist. And they kept saying, you have to get your diabetes under control, which was such a strange diagnosis because he was the epitome of health and fitness. He was a personal trainer. He owned a gym. He was a tennis professional. And they just kept diagnosing him with type 1 diabetes and saying, you have to get your sugar under control. And one night he um, he had a seizure and he ceased until he passed out. And we ended up in ER. Um, at this point, I had another newborn daughter, Mabel, who was six months old. And they ran an MRI and lo and behold, he had a a brain tumor. So he was rushed to the hospital, um, had surgery. They said, because it was only a stage two tumor, we could watch and wait if we wanted to. And that's what we opted for. And they said, you know, a lot of times if you're healthy, these tumors don't come back for 20, 25 years and you can live a relatively normal life. And that's what we were shooting for. Just, all right, let's do it. And he, he (laughs) right. I mean, you have to live with hope and he rebounded full of life and vitality. And we accidentally got pregnant again because he was feeling good. And, um, in the middle of that pregnancy, he had to go to quarterly MRI appointments and, um, let me think. I was about 20, 20 weeks along with that pregnancy. He went to what was a quarterly MRI appointment and he called me up on the phone and he said, Jess, I have to check myself into ER. The tumor's back. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. At this point, I have 
three young children. I'm pregnant with our fourth. Um, he checks himself in. They do another surgery to remove a baseball sized tumor. And this time, um, it's a stage four glioblastoma. And long story short, he went through treatments. He lasted exactly 14 months and passed away in August 2010. And I was a 33 year old widow with four children under seven at that point. That's, you want me to keep going? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners can even imagine themselves in your shoes at that point. Um, in my practice, I certainly have met clients who've, you know, who've been in, in similar circumstances, but this is just unimaginable pain. Yes. Keep going. Cause the story gets better from there. It does get better. Um, so yes, 33 year old widow, four children under seven, one with profound disabilities. And I am blogging through all of this, just keeping the masses updated through a personal blog. And one night and after. Why though? Why were you blogging? I'm always curious to ask people about that. Um, I've, I've had writing in my soul since I was eight years old. I mean, I told my parents I wanted to be a poet when I was 12, like who wants to be a poet? <laughs> and now I'm writing poetry, cool. you know, really so, cool. like I've just always had to write to release it. It's like a, a form of trauma therapy. I think for me to just get stuff out, get it out for the world to read. And then, you know, it's, it's something about writing releases it from me, I think, and in turn can help other people. So I'm blogging through this. I bring my kids out trick or treating because, you know, everybody's like, are you doing okay? And I want to show the world on Facebook that I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Um, even though I wasn't, but you know, why, why do we do that? <laughs> I don't why know. Like the Facebook world really cares if we're out trick or treating with our kids. I, I, I don't know. I need to ask that. Part of me knew, though, too, like, I wasn't curled up in bed wallowing in grief. Like, part of me knew that I had to continue movement forward and continue living. And I came home, put them all to bed, probably, like, gorged myself on candy and checked my blog. And a stranger from Pennsylvania, who I've never met and still haven't met to this day, left a little comment just saying, um, Jess, I don't even know why I'm saying this to you, but there's this widower in Oklahoma who lost his wife to brain cancer four days after Jason died. He has three young children. He's not doing very well. And I think you could be a source of encouragement to him. So I went and found him, just left a little comment on his blog, said, Hey, I'm praying for you. If you ever want to talk, you know, feel free to email me, whatever. And I got this long email the next day, like him pouring out his heart. And that led to numerous emails. Numerous emails, late night phone calls, and we were married within the year. Um, amazing. I love it. Crazy, amazing, all of the things. He moved to Michigan with his three children. We adopted each other's kids. And then in two, 2013, we moved to rural Tennessee, where we had a baby together. And now we're going on 11 years of marriage with our eight children. That is so awesome. So awesome. And I know that you're a very faithful family and that that plays a lot into, you know, how you um, just move forward 
um, in your life. And that's, I know that's not for everybody, but I know that that's what works for you. And that's just awesome. So great. So you, you wrote about this in your first book, Sunlight Burning at Midnight. So great. I didn't get to read the whole book. I was trying to get ready for this interview. I (laughs) got to go back and finish it. Um, Just goosebumps, you know, Um, by the way, audience, Jess is a really great writer. She really is. She has writing in her soul. Um, Some people do put out books just kind of um, maybe just journaling their story and they're good books, but but Jess is really a great writer. So oh, I encourage you. <laughs> you so much to get her books. Start with Sunlight Burning at Midnight. She's got a new book that came out in June. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, but this book is the beginning of, you know, what happens at first and then, um, you know, starts chronicling on. So she was, her story was featured on the Today Show because, of course, this kind of thing doesn't happen every day. You know, this is not something that you see every day. And I love how you talk about your writing, that it just has always been there for you. And But it's more than just something that you need to do for your own trauma. It is your gift, I think, to the world. At least that's the way that I look at it. And it's it's your way of working out your stuff, but something that certainly helps heal everybody else along the way, too. Um, I know when I was writing my book, it started out as just a journal for me. But then as I kind of got to a certain point in the book, I realized that it could be something for other people as well. Because, you know, my painful journey of losing my daughter it it really I think held meaning for other people too. So um you know And that's it, exactly what it is. I think people just want to be seen. And if you can articulate somehow their experience yeah in a great in a graceful yet truthful way. Right. Which is why poetry resonates so much with me because it's so open to interpretation too. Um you know, it, it can mean so many things in our journeys. And yeah, talk about that a little bit. What does it mean to you when we talk about telling our stories? Because on the um, that today show, you know, Autism Wars, your, your <laughs> quote was really um, meaningful to me. You said most of us are not sharing our experiences to diminish our child's privacy or to embarrass our children. We're doing it because we're desperate for change. Um, noting that many overloaded parents need help. People can't fix what they don't know about. Mm-hmm. I resonate with that so much. Sometimes I feel that people don't want to see the ugly of our lives because it makes them so uncomfortable and having raised a child for 17 years that was so profoundly disabled, so sick, so involved, involved in quotation marks, it, it made people so uncomfortable and it was so hard to talk about. It hurt people. You could see the hurt on their face. You know, they don't want to think about a child being so hurt all the time in a family being so hurt. 
that they just want you to tell them everything is fine and move on. But when you do that, you don't honor people's experiences. And when you don't know what's going on with the family, you're basically silencing us. And when we're silenced, we can't get the help that we need. Mm-hmm. So now I want to turn that over to you. And I want you to tell me, elaborate on your comment and tell me in your own words, what does that mean to you sharing our stories and talk about that a little bit? I often think it's kind of funny how I do have so many special needs families and caregivers who follow me, but I also have so many, I'm going to do this in air quotes, like typical families drawn to my story. And I think because families like ours have lived in isolation for so long and I'm kind of peeling back the curtain a tiny bit. I mean, you know, even the tiny bit that you expose you're still not showing the whole story and there's so much more that could be shown, but the world literally cannot handle our full realities and out of respect for our individual with disabilities. We have, it's such a fine line to navigate because you do want to respect your child, their privacy, their dignity, but there's also the caregiver's story that needs to be told or we will just be shoved further and further into isolation, exhaustion, anxiety, stress. And sometimes it does feel like the whole world would just prefer that we would stay in our little holes covered up because once you see something, most normal people want to do something to try to fix that problem. And I think that's where, I don't know, for some reason, people have resonated with what I write and it's brought out this advocate in me that I didn't even know I had in me. Um, it's become my life's work with everything I do with the books I write with, you know, the the nonprofit with the Lucas project. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Um, So tell us more about that because I mean, you're really trying to reach out and offer some relief through your project. So that's really exciting. Tell us. I'm really trying to do way too much, but (laughs) that's how I'm wired. Um, Well, the Lucas Project provides recognition and respite for special needs families. And what that breaks down into is we are creating a documentary project. We're about three years in called Unseen, um, exposing the mental health crisis among special needs caregivers. And Mm -hmm. it explores these topics of isolation, exhaustion, PTSD, anxiety, all these things that other people won't talk about. And our goal is not, you know, to be disrespectful. Our goal is to bring more resources and support to families like ours. Because again, going back to the date to the Today Show article, if people don't know, they can't help. And I think most people do have kind hearts and do want to help, but we need to make them aware. Um, and then I, we also run a podcast called Coffee with Caregivers, which is, um, a podcast where I just chat with different caregivers and sort of peel back the curtains and expose, you know, the inner workings of what their life looks like. Just again, to bring more awareness and recognition to families like ours and our respite parts. Great. I, I'm so thrilled and honored to be a part of it. Um, we send care packages to caregivers that are nominated throughout the nation. 
that's the best part of my job is packing up these care packages and sending them off. Um, we also uh, supply spa baskets to mamas yes. who are in ICU with their children. Um, okay. Respite grants. We just gave out our first $1,000 respite grant to a community in Texas who is launching October 14th. She just sent me an update and I'm so excited for that. Um, and then on our website, we have caregiver wish list where we have currently 12 special needs caregivers and they each have a wish list of um, just gift cards from Amazon that would make their life a little bit easier. And then the general mm -hmm. public goes in and they purchase those for particular caregivers, you know, who they resonate with type of thing. That's so wonderful. I have to tell you, I spent a lot of time in the hospital with my daughter and trying to take a shower or just, you know, stay, um, keep your spirits up mm -hmm. when you're there sleeping on one of those little cots or on a chair. Awful. Right. So awful. But you can't leave. You can't leave. And yeah. all they give you is one of those little toothbrushes or a little bar of soap. And sometimes the person who's at home with your kids, and for me, I was single for most of the time that my daughter was um, alive. It was really difficult. I didn't have somebody who could go back and forth and get me clothes mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so, you know, I relied on the generosity of the nurses in the unit to help. And, oh, man, a spa basket, that would have been amazing. Even just a pair of, like, fluffy socks or slippers right. or something. Half the time, you know, the nurses would give me the, um, the, the, um, scrubs or something mm -hmm. to change into because I'd be in the same clothes for like three days, you know? Um, right. Really, really uncomfortable. Not that you were thinking about your own comfort, but you know, things that people who don't live this life, they just don't realize. So it's just wonderful that you're doing this kind of thing. Really wonderful. And you are doing too much. Uh, the list that I got in preparing for this podcast, I'm like page after page after page. I'm like, okay, when does this woman sleep? I don't know. Um, it's incredible and uh, really, really impressive. So your, your book. I don't do it. I don't do it all. I just need to put that out there. And. <laughs> I'm extremely, um, what's the word? Self-disciplined, I think, or, um, I'm really good with time management. Like every minute is absolutely dedicated to something, but then by five o'clock every night, I'm done. Totally done. Eat dinner with the family. We rest, we take a walk, we wind down and in bed by 10 o'clock up at seven. So I do sleep. I sleep quite well. <laughs> Great. Now, so your second book just came out in June, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. And it came out to rave reviews, just like your first book. And so first of all, Blended with Grit and Grace, where did, first of all, where did you get the energy to write book number two with all those kiddos that you have? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, why... um you know, why the second book? What was the idea behind, um, you know, coming up with, you know, sort of your sequel to, you know, what's next? 
well, God willing, I want to keep popping out books. Um, I have another one coming out February, 2023. So this wow. is my life plan is to continue in nonprofit work and continue writing. Um, and just to give you a little peek into, you know, the process for this book with me, I had basically had about half of it written and it wasn't necessarily a blended book. It was more along the lines of my like hashtag, just keep living. So it was just stories from our life that we were mm -hmm. thinking, you know, people could resonate with. And it took three years to land a publisher for this book. So it was pretty well written by the time we found a publisher and they just kind of wanted to turn the slant a little bit to a blended slant, you know, about blending the family and everything. And the funny thing was, was I signed the contract in the middle of lockdown with a global pandemic with all eight of my children at home. And I was oh. like, you have got to be kidding me. I have to write half of this book in the next seven months with all of my children at home. <laughs> like, how is this going to work? And it was really intense because we were dealing with really intense behaviors from Lucas. That's when we finally decided to... um try medication because he was just so distraught over not being able to go back to school. There was screaming and aggression. And I think my husband and I figured out a work schedule where I would go in the sunroom and work for a few hours and then we would swap. Um, and then he would work for a few hours. But I think, you know, people have commented on parts of the book seem really deep and even sort of dark. And there was so much anguish during that period of life in lockdown with a global pandemic and severe yeah. autism screaming and like rattling the walls. And I think that's where a lot of that came from. And going back to even blogging through my late husband's cancer journey, it was like releasing a lot of that trauma that I was dealing with. Oh, that's so interesting to get that backstory up that, that I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't said that. Right. Most people, yeah, it's not something that you usually explain, like how the book came about. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, there was just a lot going on. But I, I tend to work through a lot of my emotions with words. Was your first book published with a traditional publisher as well? No, that was a hybrid publisher. Um Deep River Books, which is kind of an interesting concept. They'll, they'll take a chance on you as a new author, but then you have to buy so many books, um, just to sort of make up their cost. Yeah. I did some, I did my first book hybrid also. I used an editor and some graphics and, you know, sort of combination of things as well so it's interesting all the different ways that you can get a book published mm -hmm. these days so it is and i know people um you know have a lot of pros and cons now that you're going through traditional publishing for your second book and you have all of these time demands and i know that they really march you through sort of a production schedule and everything what do you think about the process in comparison um, I work well on deadlines, uh, so that's not. Of course, you have an eight that, kid. That's oh. kind of how I tick. Um, so it works for me. But yeah, my first book um took ten years to even find a hybrid publisher. It's really hard to break through as a newbie author, 
And I would suggest going a non-traditional route if you really have a story in your soul, because if it's a good story, you'll attract the traditional publishers and eventually get a contract. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, um, again, that book came out in June, Blended with Grit and Grace. Just keep living when life is unexpected. So good. And, you know, there's some hilarious, hilarious parts in there as well. And so you just, you know, really have to um, stay connected, even through some of the dark pieces. So um, definitely have to check out the blog because the blog is really going to keep you connected to just keep you entertained and also you know sometimes just feeling for her and her journey and and connected with lucas and just the whole crew so um i think the next thing that i want to talk about and this has to do with the fact that we are in disability awareness month october is disability awareness month on so many levels there are a number of things that we generally talk about in october um and for me, I like to talk a lot about transition. And I know that Lucas is, he's in his transition time. Mm -hmm. And we talked before we got on to our podcast today. And this is something that is definitely on your mind. So as a mom of a kiddo who was, you know, sort of more on the profound um, side of things, you are facing future planning in a way that's different from many people whose kids have disabilities. We are, you know, we're a smaller group, you know, those of us with kids with profound disabilities. And um, we have a lot more to think about and plan for. We're planning for somebody else's entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to think about. So, um, I'd like to spend the last maybe 15 minutes of our time together talking about that and kind of picking your brain. What's on your mind? What's, you know, what's really keeping you up at night? And what are you talking to families about? Because you are so in touch and have your thumb on the pulse of what's going on out there in our disability community. Well, it doesn't matter what state or country you live in, every single person says the same thing. Um, like we're on a waiting list. We're on a waiting list for services. You know, once they age out of school at typically 22 here in Michigan, it's 26. And we just moved back to Michigan in April um, from Tennessee because looking at Luke's, Luke's future in Tennessee, we were just realizing there weren't any resources and decided that we needed to move back home to my hometown where even if there weren't resources, Luke could stay in school until he was 26 years old. That includes summer school. Plus we had our community of support with friends and family who would help us because you can't necessarily put all your eggs in the government's basket because they, they screw you over all the time. So that's why we moved back to Michigan. You know, you can think you have a program or funding in place or whatever, and then they, they remove the funding and then the, there's not, you know, the program or the resource anymore. So we moved back here. We are temporarily living in um, a temporary home because we're building an accessible house for Luke, which will include kind of this layout where 
if we ever wanted to convert our home into a family home, which here in Michigan, you can take on up to six residents within your home and then hire caregivers to help supply that care. That's one option we're kind of considering. Um, and then you're, you contract with the local community health organizations to accept different residents. Um, and then we want to have like chickens and gardens and stuff so that there's some meaning to these individuals' lives where they can help out. That's one option we've considered. Another option, um, and just we, we're thinking outside the box because there isn't anything here that you can take advantage of as a family unless you are in a dire situation. So basically, like my husband or I would have to be dying to be able to get Luke into a facility or a residential program somewhere in this area, which is really unfortunate. Um, but we've even considered building something. We've looked at land um, and we've talked to a few organizations about what the possibility of building like a big, what are they called? Barn, barn, those huge barn houses, you know, where we could have some caregivers and residents, um, we we looked at a group home for sale last weekend. Just like, is this something that we could make work for our situation? And I think it's really easy to find the property or the home. You know, the issue is finding the caregivers mm-hmm. and funding the, the caregivers and finding people you trust and finding people who are consistent. And I mean, we deal with that now even. Um, finding consistent help, finding people we can trust. And because the pay scale is total crap and nobody wants to work for minimum wage and even like day programs and, and, you know, other things that our kids can do on Christmas break or spring break. Um, Lucas seemed to kind of fall off that cliff at like 10 years old where camps and why day programs and summer programs would even allow him to participate up until like, nine or 10. Yeah. And then he wasn't so cute anymore. You know, he was just a cute little boy. Yeah. And then the thought of like changing a 16 year old's diaper, like nobody, that seems to be the defining measure. I think often like, Oh, incontinence. No, we, we don't, we're not going to take that on type of thing. Even with adult day programs, like, no, we don't want to mess with that, which I understand there's a lot that has to go into finding the right people to help with that. But these are the families who need help more than anybody. Like you were saying, the families with individuals who have profound disabilities who will require total care for the rest of their lives. We're the ones who can't find anything. And I guess that's where my lane is because I want something meaningful for my child to do for the rest of his life. And I don't want to devote 100% of my remaining time here on earth to caring for him because a yes to him till the day I die is a no to the rest of my family. It's a no to my marriage. It's a no to my future grandchildren. It's a no to my grown children and and to myself. Yeah. So there is a lot of ambition, but yet it's to solve a huge problem in my life. And a family is made up of more than one person. Mm-hmm. Every person in the family is has value and is important. And everybody's needs have to get met. And that 
is so challenging for our families, for sure. Um, but you mentioned something about meaningful day, and that's where we really strike out, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of what we do is warehousing people, stick them into a program where they're just, you know, right, being shuffled around all day and kind of babysat and they're not doing anything meaningful with their day. Right. I love the concept of these farm Mm -hmm. communities that are kind of popping up. We have one right down the road from us too. Of course, a huge waiting list and your person only gets in if there's a dire situation. But I think that's what I'm working in my mind too. Like if we could do animals and so many of these individuals do so well with animals and there's like a therapy involved with, you know, horses and sheep and gardens, give them something meaningful to do and have a day program. And I don't know, I'm like just a mom who has a problem that is trying to brainstorm to try to solve the problem. So much of what happens though, in our government and in our state agencies, they don't ask us what what we need and how to solve our problems. They don't include us and all of the decisions get made top down and it's all happening without us. Right. And one of the things that struck me the most about that article that you were part of, the Autism Wars article, was that separation between the self-advocates and the family caregivers. And there was this inherent uh, need to sort of pit us against each other. Mm-hmm. And yet we really need to be together and fighting with the people who are trying to keep us from the scarce resources that we right. all need. <laughs> right. so, um, and can I just say, um, talk about a clickbait title. Yeah. Um, we did not approve that title. <laughs> that yes, was totally right. too. And I've met some autistic individuals who have been extremely kind and helpful too. Um, and suggesting different things with Lucas. Lucas wasn't diagnosed till late in life. So we didn't even grow up like knowing he had autism or like he had so many other diagnoses that it didn't dawn on us really that autism could also be part of the picture and nobody ever said anything, but we lived in rural Tennessee. So we weren't like immersed in the specialist world. We were just like living our life and nobody said anything. <laughs> and then we moved and somebody was like, Oh, his autistic tendencies. And I was like, Luke's not autistic. She, she was like, yeah, he is. Wow. And I went home and Googled it. I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, super autistic like every single thing he checked the boxes so he was just always Luke and part of me thinks had we known earlier maybe that would have been beneficial maybe we could have looked into ABA or but part of me thinks too like he just never had that label slapped on him he was just Luke and we like instinctually as his mom I look back and I was doing things that worked for his autistic tendencies and didn't even know that I was like doing the right things. And your approach was person-centered. So that's (laughs) awesome because you did what worked for him. A person-centered plan is always the best plan. Yeah. And when you know better, you do better. Like I've, I've been educated on timers 
I didn't realize that, you know, that that could be an effective tool, setting a timer when you're like transitioning to a new activity. And so we tried a few normal timers and he didn't, he didn't want anything to do with them. But then we bought a timer that turns blue, you know, when you put mm-hmm. it to the 10 minute marker and now he sits and watches it. And when it dings, he allows us to transition him. So it was mm-hmm. like, okay, if we could have these healthy conversations between, you know, the, the autistic advocates and the caregivers, we're very willing to learn, but not when you come after us. And I've had horrible comments about how Luke should kill me in my sleep and I should be neutered. And like that, that's not going to translate to a healthy dialogue. Like right. I'm going to shut you down very, very quickly and boot you off my page immediately because that's horrible to say that to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard when you have some trolls following you around like that, but that's kind of the nature of social media. It is right. Well, but lucky for you and there's a good reason for this. You have a lot of really great followers and a lot of really positive, um, complimentary followers. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. As I said, um, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. And before you got pulled into this autism wars, I was (laughs) following you and thought you were great. So um, I am really excited that you've been able to be with us today. I wanted to know if you have, as we close out today, a couple of tips that we could leave the audience with. Um, I know that we have caregivers, professionals, and, um, you know, struggling, even individuals with disabilities themselves, just a wide variety of people who listen to this podcast all over the world. So any tips that you have that we can leave the audience with today? I know we've touched on a couple of different things, but it would be great if we could kind of synthesize our talk today. I think, you know, my heart beats for caregivers and I'm a caregiver advocate and it's just time for caregivers to begin to peel back that curtain a little bit and allow other people into our stories. Because as we mentioned earlier, we're not going to get the change that we desperately need for our children if we don't allow other people to see a little bit of the difficulties that our lives entail. And then secondly, at the Lucas Project, we have a saying, the child is only as healthy as the caregiver. Mm -hmm. And in order to care for your child the most effectively, you really have to prioritize yourself. And what I often will say to to moms who say, I just don't have time. I don't have time to do that 10 minute walk or that 10 minute yoga session or read a book or whatever. And I'll I'll say to them, but you're going to burn yourself out so badly and then you're going to die and you're no good to anybody if you're dead. I mean, you can't take care of your child if you're not alive. So either you're going to prioritize self-care and managing your stress or you're going to get so burnt out, you're going to have health problems and you're not going to be good to anybody. So I just really encourage moms, you know, I think that's what people often look at me at as too, as, you know, a mom of eight children. And I hope that what they glean from my life is if Jess can do it, I don't have any excuse. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, eight children, profound disabilities, running a nonprofit, writing books. And I do, I walk every single morning. I stretch every night. My husband and I go on a date every weekend. 
nice. the two hour date because we have to rush back home to put Luke to bed. But you prioritize what's important to you and you just need to step out and make it happen for yourself. You're worth it. Yes, that's, that's it. You're worth it. Mm-hmm. You are worth it. And every person in your family is important and that includes you. And what would you say to people who want to support the caregiver? So if you're not a caregiver, but you have somebody in your life who is a caregiver and you want to support them, what is your words of wisdom to them? Do something. I understand that like my loot can probably appear kind of scary if you're not familiar with his needs or whatever. And maybe you don't want to provide respite for my family. But having gone through my cancer journey with my late husband and everything with Luke, we have had wonderful, wonderful people show up with all different skill sets and abilities. Um, one woman showed up and gave all of my kids haircuts before school started. Like another one took my kids out um, shoe shopping before school started. She was like, I'm sure all your kids need new shoes. And that's just one thing that you don't have to worry about. Um, I had people showing up and weeding my gardens, uh, doing my laundry, checking my oil or bringing my van to, to get an oil change, like dropping off a meal. It can be that simple. And don't say, would you like me to bring a meal by? It has to be more concrete, like lasagna or tacos. Don't leave it open-ended because caregivers are notorious for saying, oh, I'm fine. They're not fine. They are right. not fine. We're <laughs> Do never something. Fine. We're not fine. <laughs> like bring the meal, bring a loaf of banana bread, anything that just says, I see you. Like I honor your experience. I know what you're doing is hard. And I, I see you and I want to help in this small little way. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much, Jess. Jess plus mess. I love it. Please check out her books and connect with her on social media. She is amazing. She gets so much done, probably more. She gets more done by 9 a.m. than you get done all day. I know that's true for me. <laughs> that is true. I'm up at like six to nine are my power hours. Oh, my God. I'm tired just thinking about it and reading through all of the stuff that you do, really. Um, but I am so excited. I'm going to complete the book that I started reading and I'm going to um, do some posting and shine a light on the Lucas project because I think it's very exciting. So I hope that we get to cross paths again. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. So have a great day. Bye, Jess. You too. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.